It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am so happy that you made it to class this morning. I am really excited about today's conversation. You know I'm excited when I have like a little ditty of a, a song or something to sing along with introducing the guests that we're bringing on because I'm not even going to do a whole like long description because I'm so excited. I want every single minute to be spent in conversation with our next guest who we're bringing to the front of the class. He was elected to serve as mayor. Let's see, back in, I think, 2009, he was mayor of his hometown, San Antonio, Texas, before he joined President Obama's cabinet as the youngest member of the cabinet, as the secretary for housing and urban development. He went on to run a very dynamic and engaging presidential campaign for the 2020 Democratic nomination. And now he hosts a weekly podcast called United, what was it? Our America, I think it's called, which he'll talk more about. And he also has subjected himself to being a regular commentator on NBC News and MSNBC. Welcome to the front of the class for the very first time. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Julian Castro, former secretary of HUD. Welcome to the show. Great, great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you making the time to be with us this morning. We have a whole lot of things to talk about. So that's why I wanted to save like every moment for you and I to be in discussion. But I'm going to start first where we start with every guest who joins us at the front of the class for the first time. And for you to tell us the story of your first civic action. Hmm. You know, I grew up with a mom that was a hellraiser. She was a, a Chicana activist uh, in the late 60s and mostly the early and mid 70s. My brother and I were born in 1974. Uh, and even though my mother uh, had slowed down a little bit, she wasn't quite as active. She would still drag us to like speeches and rallies and organizational meetings and a lot of stuff that I found boring when I was that young. But one of the things I remember Probably uh, the first civic action that I remember is handing out um, campaign flyers on election day for a candidate that must have been like 1978 or 79 of, you know, trying to, you know, when my mom was trying to be a part of the democratic process. Uh, and she took my twin brother Joaquin and me along with her. Uh, and that day we were trying to persuade voters to vote for this city council candidate. That's probably the earliest thing that I remember. She swears up and down that there are pictures of my brother and I in twin strollers that she was strolling, pushing down in a march when we were still in strollers. Uh, but I have no memory of that. I'd say that that was the first one if I could actually remember it. But the first one I remember was handing out flyers in 78 or 79. Yeah, I you know, our parents always have like stories and they're like, and here's the picture. And I'll say, where's the picture, mother? 
And <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Right, right, right. Well, you know, you know, I must admit this is all a ploy inviting you in order to eventually talk to your mom or sort of talk <laughs> like talk more about your family. But I, you know, I, I, I'll settle for you for right now. But <laughs> but certainly, you know, as a a young organizer, I remember learning so much about the Black and Chicano and Mexican collaboration and organizations in different parts of the country, particularly because I went to high school in California. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time having grown up majority in New York City and then going to the West Coast. It was the first time that I had heard about additional organizing activities outside of Black and Puerto Ricans, right? So it was like, oh, wait, there, there are so many different other movements of the Black and Brown collaboration. And why didn't anybody tell me this? You know, where am I just finding it out? So I am definitely love to hear more stories, but I want to talk about you and I want to talk about so many things, you know, your time at HUD and thinking about the housing crisis that this country still continues to be in. Last week, we had a focus of marking World Homeless Day. And one of the things that I mentioned is that you know, it's so frustrating knowing that we have the resources in order to be able to provide shelter for everyone. We have the resources to ensure that children are going to bed hungry. We have the resources. And yet what's missing is this political will or in this continued conversation that things are scarce, right? Like that if I give people a a home of their own is taking something away from me, or if I ensure that children have food to eat and an equitable education that is taking something away from me. With your time serving at HUD, you know, what, uh, I mean, it's a loaded question, but some of the frustrations of trying to address some of these issues that are systemic, that we know we have the resources to address, but still haven't. Well, you're absolutely right that it is, it can be very frustrating. These problems can seem intractable with the path that we're on. And I saw really clearly when I was HUD secretary and also as mayor of San Antonio, um, both uh, how deep these issues go, how many people are still so intimately impacted by poverty, by need, uh, by lack of a safe, decent, affordable place to live. In big cities and small towns all over the United States, people who are Republican, Democrat, independent, it doesn't matter. Um, it affects everybody. Uh, the last 18 months that we've lived through have been awful in so many ways, uh, especially for the most vulnerable. But I, I hope that if there's a silver lining there, it's that more Americans right now recognize that we're all in it together. And hopefully more people in the country feel that we should do something to address the needs of the most vulnerable people. And so I'm hoping right now, going forward, actually, that there's more resolve to tackle some of these systemic issues and to make the profound investments that we need to make so that everybody in this country can live with dignity. And that in the years to come, we start to treat Housing is a human right so that we work to make sure that everybody has safe, decent, affordable place to live. You know, it's that that frustrating part just as more of my peers are being elected to office, as more of us are serving in uh, different positions. You and I are only a few out uh, a few years difference. And 
you know, harder. I, I, I know talking to some of us who are congressional members who, you know, work in the, you know, work in the White House and other things. You know, sometimes they just feel like someday I just want to go in and just break the bank open and just give everybody, <laughs> you know, it's just like, here, have a house, you know, take that and sort of that. But you're bound by, you know, policies and red tape and things. And it seems like a a huge mountain to climb, to scale, to get over, to be able to do what you set out on the outset, which is to be able to help people. And, you know, the, the, the red tape, the policies, the political back and forth and the partisanship often get in the way of why people join public service in the first place, which is to make a significant change in people's daily lives. And people are now at the moment, it happens all the time in, you know, many different generations where they're fed up you know, about it. They understand that this is a game that for some people and not really looking to change people's lives. What do you say to people who are on that brink? Because I know a lot of us are, particularly given this, you know, past year and a half that we've all experienced. It's like, you know, what more could you need other than being able to see people living on the edge, you know, dying? Like, what more do you need in order to, you know, break open the vaults and just give people what they need? That in our democratic system, the best way to make change is to be a part of that change, starting with uh, voting and beyond that, helping to organize others to vote, uh, to make their voices heard. And doing everything that you can in terms of advocacy, even if that just means talking to your friends and talking to your family. If we're going to make change in our country, it starts with being a part of it, getting in the middle of it. And so what I would say is as frustrating as it can be, as disillusioning as it can be, as heartbreaking oftentimes as it can be, uh, if you want to make change, there's no substitute for actually participating um, and in fact, if we don't, then things are only going to get worse. Uh, and they, as, as uh, bad as they have felt during these last 18 months, especially under the previous administration, uh, they could be even worse. So, okay, let's go to housing really quick before I want to move on, because I want you to tell me a bit more about the podcast that you're doing right now, because it sounds really exciting. And I've only been able to hear teasers because, you know, I'm listening to your former boss's book and he's like, why is, why is he writing something that's like that long? I don't understand. <laughs> I <don't> understand. <laughs> and it's still more books to come. I'm just like, Jeez, guy, <laughs> but when we're talking about housing, there's a lot of, and you know, this is a civics education show. These, you know, people want to understand what are the interconnected problems, be they on the local, state, or federal level, that exist that prevent us from really providing people shelter, from making sure that there are people couch surfing and living out on the streets. What, what is the complex at, you know, such that we have five minutes for you to explain, what are the things that exist that prevent that, that reality? I mean, well, it is complex. Everything from the fact that real estate uh, prices have been rising very quickly over the last decade, um, and even before that, but especially more recently, uh, to the fact that over the last 40 years, 
I believe that too many Americans have bought into this idea that if somebody is poor, it's their fault. Um, that if somebody's poor, they're lazy. If they can't afford a safe, decent place to live, that's their problem. Um, and during this post Reagan, uh, or Reagan era, hopefully soon post Reagan era, that's the attitude that I think has been taken. And as a consequence, as a country and in many states and localities, we haven't had the commitment to put the policies in place or make the resource investments that are necessary to actually offer ample housing opportunity to everyone from the middle class to people who are low income to people who are homeless and don't have an income right now. Um, so, you know, it's, it's both those mechanical issues. It's also, I think, too oftentimes ideological. Um, and then of course you have at the local level, things like nimbyism that, and stereotypes and biases that get in the way of creating affordable housing, especially in some neighborhoods to the federal level where Congress is too oftentimes gridlocked. And so they can't, it's hard for them to get big things done. We may be getting out of that era now with the passage of the American Rescue Plan and hopefully the Build Back Better plan that President Biden has put forward. Uh, but the jury's still out on that. Yeah. You know, I, I hold out hope. And one of the reasons I continue to be involved as well is like it makes no sense to sit and, you know, just continue to let bad people have their run of the country and of our society in, in general. You know, I have this theory that, you know, I read an interview, I think you did recently talking about what was going on in Texas and what was going on with this form of the GOP. And it, in my talks and speeches, I talk about how, you know, every year, you know, there's another thing that GOP or conservatives rile people up about, right? It's whether or not people are coming and taking your jobs or then it's going to um, be bathrooms, you know, for transgender people. That Then it's critical race theory, right? Like they always have to find something to galvanize their dwindling base in order to keep them active, angry, and agitated. And part of the reason I think that they do that is because of recognizing that their base is shrinking, particularly in places like Texas, right? You have to keep people at, you know, angry and agitated and engaged because your population is shrinking, because people who think like you, the number of people who think like you are shrinking. And so you just got to keep the very shrinking population that you have angry and active on something. That's my theory. Not sure if you subscribe to the same thing, <laughs> but I know in places like Texas and Florida, like this exists. Let's, you know, get people agitated about something in order to continue to get them to vote for us. Never mind the fact that we're still not doing, you know, voting for policies or enacting legislation that would actually help our base and, and folks. We're just going to keep them angry about this. Is that what's happening in Texas? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what they always do, it's the same playbook, is that they find a boogeyman. And you know, that boogeyman can rate everything from folks will remember the 1990 Senate race uh, in North Carolina between uh, Harvey Gantt, who had been the mayor of Charlotte, was trying to become uh, maybe the first or probably the first African-American senators of North Carolina. And Jesse Helms, who was the incumbent North Carolina senator, did this ad 
where you have these, this white man's hands crumpling up a rejection letter uh, from a university or an employer. And the boogeyman was affirmative action, you know, that supposedly all people of color were taking advantage of was the problem. A few years later, uh, you know, it was gay relationships uh, and the idea of gay marriage. And that was the big issue that was terrible for everybody's lives, according to these folks. Uh, or immigrants is a, a usual staple of their bogeyman politics. They always take something that is seen as bad, divisive to their folks, to their base of people, and they just stoke that over and over and over. Most recently uh, in Texas and other states, it's transgender youth. Um, you had these bathroom bills. Now you have these uh, high school sports-related pieces of legislation. It's always the same playbook. Uh, and it's really a cancer of Republican Party politics that that's all that that party has become. It's no longer about the positive. I mean, at least back in the 80s, Reagan, you know, articulated this idea of a prosperous country and, you know, the freedom and job opportunities and whatever. These guys don't even do that anymore. Uh, that's not the Trump model really anymore. It is division, 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 white supremacy, uh, creating bogeyman, and then riding that as far as you can go. And then when you're done, let's create another thing, right? <laughs> you know, in the show. No, I mean, that's a great point. Like if you ask a lot of those folks in their face right now, uh, you know, you went back and you look at the pictures of these folks who were yelling at uh, black young men and women at lunch counters uh, or uh, yelling and spitting in the faces of those students who were trying to go to school in, in Little Rock or at some of the universities. Now, those folks are older now, the ones that are still alive. And you said, oh, well, what about this? Do you feel differently? I'm sure some of them would say they, they do. Um, but then you fast forward you know, 30 or 40 years to folks who said nasty things about, um, you know, gay or lesbian couples that just loved each other and wanted to get married 15 years ago, but they were out there doing the same thing. There's never any accountability. They just move from one boogeyman and spewing the hate and division onto the next day. And then when society finally acknowledges that it was the right moral thing and right ethical thing and constitutional thing to acknowledge the rights of these people that they were stepping on, you know, it's like, oh, whatever happened to that? Who knows? They're on to their next boogeyman. Right. Transgender youth now. It's immigrants now. It's, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that's, that's actually, to me, one of the most frustrating things is that more folks don't get called out and more, more everyday regular voters who keep voting in that direction don't recognize that playbook that, yeah. I mean, in 10 years, these guys are going to shut up about many of these things because society's going to have moved on for the better. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, they, you know, there's a lot of accountability that's missed. There's the accountability of, you know, like you mentioned, those who were the hecklers, the spitters, the, you know, the protesters from there, right? You know, I imagine sometimes, you know, that maybe there's a granddaughter somewhere and be like, Mima, is that you in this picture? Uh, <laughs> you know, spitting. Well, and, there are a lot, probably a lot of grandchildren that recognize how uh, wrong that was, right? And, and do ask about that, right? But yeah. But 
the reason that that happens today is not because of the people that were yelling and spitting. It's because of the, the bravery, the courageousness of all of the people who stood up to it back then. And so I think the lesson, you know, for young people today and all people is that you should be on that side of the folks who are standing up to that kind of division and hate and the people that stoke it. Um, and to those folks that, that have stoked it, it's also, I think, a hopeful message is that people can change, right? It's never too late uh, to, to do some deep reflecting and thinking about why you think a certain way and to try and learn a different perspective and to change, hopefully. Yeah. Well, and then the other accountability piece is that those who are in states or in districts where their representatives, their governor, their mayor is continuing and sort of stoking the fire of that, you know, their issues as general constituents then don't get addressed, right? So you have governors that say, you know, stoke the fear. And then meanwhile, your state has continued to be the poorest state. And so, you know, you don't have Medicaid expansion. You don't have Affordable you know, Care Act exchange fully, you know, implemented. You don't have the money necessary to invest in your education system or jobs. It's like a continued, you know, that lack of accountability because I'm dangling this anger stick over here. You're not paying attention that I'm giving all of your money and all of the other things to wealthy people and sort of not taking care of you as a constituent as well. No, that's very true. And there are so many people of different backgrounds, including, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, poor white people who have been essentially, um, you know, victimized by those same politics in a different way, of course, and not being targeted in the same way oftentimes, but who don't get good health care or, or perennially work at the minimum wage um, or don't have the safe, decent housing that they ought to have or, or, you know, name it, you know, in so many ways also have been impacted. And the hope is always that, that you'll have, uh, leaders and also organizers on the ground who are able to build coalitions so that people of different backgrounds can, can come together and defeat that kind of boogeyman politics and and politics of division. And, you know, uh, there are different movements that have tried that from the labor movement, uh, to the racial and social justice movements during the civil rights era. And since then, uh, and political leaders, you know, that tried to build coalitions like that, Barack Obama comes to mind most recently. So there's, there's always hope there's always work to do, uh, no matter who you are on that spectrum. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. When we are Welcome back to Sunday Civics. So what the heck is happening in Texas? Because I picked up the New York Times, I guess it was a couple of days ago, to see that map. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Texas like, is in the middle of all of the country's news for all the worst reasons. 
whether yeah. it's, uh, you know, this abortion ban that was passed, voter suppression legislation, uh, a ridiculous posture on immigration that the state leadership has taken, uh, you know, failure to be able to keep the lights on a few months ago and several hundred Texans dying because of that winter freeze uh, failure. The, the state, the way I think about it is that really the state is being led by dinosaurs, uh, these cavemen that are living on borrowed political time. The state has changed a lot over the last few decades. I mean, it's grown uh, to, I think, 29 million people today. It's diverse. Uh, it has huge cities that are some of the fastest growing, but also rural areas. Uh, it has a lot of people who have moved in from other places in the nation. Um, and it's become a lot more moderate than the state leadership is. Um, and because of that, it's this, there's this tension that exists in the state that's sort of a microcosm for what's going on in the country in terms of this underlying anxiety that a lot of the folks on the right have about a changing America. Well, they have that even more in, a, in Texas that is changing more rapidly. And that, I think, is at the heart of a lot of that tension that you see. Yeah. Well, I know there is talk a bit about, as you mentioned, even though the leadership is one thing, the people of Texas are another thing, right? We've seen a number of attempts to, you know, I know I've personally supported different candidates running, whether it's in Congress, whether it's in the state legislature or others trying to really turn the tide in Texas and sort of to kick out that old <laughs> dinosaur generation. And, you know, as you mentioned, the state is in a bit of a transition. And I know that there's a number of key states across the country that are experiencing the same thing, right? Where you have a dwindling older political class who has been in power, who continues to invest in a certain population. Um, meanwhile, if you look at the census numbers and then if you just look at people, whether or not they can, you know, filled out the census or not, you see that the these states are changing and that it may be not even a full generation, just, you know, uh, another 10 years where we'll start to see a breakthrough happen. I'm encouraged by it, particularly not only from a party politics standpoint in that I, I practice my party politics through the Democratic Party, but just for us as humanity, you know, as Americans to be able to step into a, a, a new dawn of politics that really looks at taking care of people instead of specialists interests. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what makes me hopeful is, is this idea that perhaps after this pandemic, that more people recognize that we need to take care of one another and that we can do that if we're bold enough to make investments in education and healthcare and housing in economic opportunity for everyone. And that Build Back Better agenda does a lot of that if they're able to get that through. I mean, it's not everything that we need, but it's a huge step forward. Uh, you're right that, you know, Texas, like Arizona, like Georgia, is undergoing this change. And if, if somebody had said to us like five years ago, oh, uh, Arizona's going to have two Democratic senators and Georgia is going to have two Democratic senators, including the first black senator, people would have been like, oh, come on, you know, like, what are you talking about? Uh, but once things start to accelerate, once they start to go, they can go pretty quickly. Now, Texas is a bigger state. 
than either one of those. And so, you know, it's taking longer for that to happen, but it is happening. Um, it, it is happening for different reasons. The demographic changes, the way that people are fed up with this leadership that's out of state, out of step with many people in the state. Um, and, and I think because people want a more hopeful approach that focuses on opportunity and on uh, equality, and that's just not what they're getting out of this leadership. Yeah. I want to roll back, uh, not even, it seems like ages ago when you ran for president, uh, <laughs> given what has happened. Great hair. That I, yeah. Just right on the side. See, if I took this head wrap off, you would see, I, I'm give, it's, it's too much. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I liked and so many, my husband who was internally campaigning in our household for you, we, we liked not only the platform, but the way that you engaged people all across the country from all different walks of life. And, you know, I'm encouraged by that in terms of how the Democratic Party can go forth and lead. How do you think just putting our critical hat on for our current party at the moment, how do you think our party needs to change or what do we need to do overall to uh, step into this new role of leadership with, like you mentioned, Georgia changing, Arizona changing, hopefully some point Florida can get to a point where we're not just cursing them out all the time. <laughs> you know, what yeah. can we do from there? Well, we need to, as the Democratic Party needs to walk the walk of inclusion and empowerment in everything that it does from the candidates that, that it helps lift up uh, at all levels. And of course, congressional races, Senate races, and so forth. Uh, in the strategy that it pursues, in terms of where the future of our votes in the Democratic Party are. There's a great article by Ron Brownstein, uh, The Atlantic, on this and where the focus should be on these this emerging coalition, especially of uh, Western and Southwestern states, places like Arizona, Nevada, Texas, uh, and including other states like North Carolina that are not in the West or Southwest. But these these increasingly diverse young states that have shown a willingness to vote democratic that don't fit the mold of uh, our you know, traditional strategy, which is our, these Rust Belt states that focus on the white working class. And don't get me wrong, we got to do both of those things. Um, we have to be as inclusive as possible, but uh, for too long, we've had a tendency, I think, to not invest as much as we should in outreach to those younger, more diverse communities. And we need to change that. Uh, during the presidential race, one of the things I brought up, for instance, and this is not the most important aspect of this, but it was one, and it was directly, you know, it directly had to do with our endeavor uh, as presidential candidates was changing the order of the primary schedule away from Iowa and New Hampshire two states that really reflect the diversity of the country and of the party. And I was very vocal during the campaign about that. Uh, and I'm hopeful that that primary calendar is going to change. I think that's going to be, you know, it'll be substantive, but really it'll be symbolic as well about uh, the Democratic Party being inclusive and walking the walk. 
I and I'm really I, I do remember that and I remember loving it because I was like we could pick it back and forth like we could do Iowa and then Georgia or Iowa South Carolina you know like we can you know make it more representative because you know the other thing is as someone who teaches civics using our political landscape right I start out by saying this is how things are this is the rules this is how things work. And so therefore, this is how you break them, right? So you have to know what the rules are and really to change them. And then I have to tell people who are always, you know, scary or skittish about, well, you know, changing the rules or what would happen if we do this. And I was like, oh, trust, people change rules all the time (laughs) So so that it can benefit them. So, right, we shouldn't feel bad about changing rules so that it can be more equitable and inclusive because people change rules all the time and it's only to benefit their individual company, their individual campaign or their individual thing. So don't feel bad about changing the rules or like, you know, ending the filibuster or something. Like yeah, no, I mean, I'd agree with you. I mean, so many of the rules out there were set during a time when a lot of communities were disempowered had no real say or input into how those rules were, were formed. And that's not to say that we don't need rules that all of us settle on and, and, you know, that guide the way things are going to run. Of course you need an orderly system. What it means though, is that too often the rules that we take as sacrosanct should not be considered that and need to be reevaluated, um, and, and updated, uh, and oftentimes, in fact, have been abused and summarily changed to benefit people who are powerful and traditionally are used to getting their way. And that shouldn't be the case. Um, They should be evaluated and they should be, you know, updated, uh, consistent with our values uh, and to achieve worthy ends. Um, If we could do that, whether it's with the filibuster or... uh, other things that, you know, I think that, I think that we're on the right track, uh, in a slightly different context, you know, it's been very gratified to see these statues of Robert E. Lee, uh, and other Confederate generals, um, taken off of, you know, their platforms in Charlottesville and in a number of other places to see school names changed from Confederate generals to civil rights heroes in different community, local communities in the country. And, you know, there's always a back and forth. Some people get very heated about that they should be kept. I vehemently disagree with that. And one of the reasons that I disagree, in addition to just substantively, that I don't think that you should choose to honor those folks. And when you have them, you know, in a big statue in the middle of your town square, what you're doing is not just remembering your history, you're, you're honoring that particular person and what they did. Um, but I also make the point that these street names were set down. These statues were decided to be put up when, uh, African-Americans or other people of color, other groups, women had virtually no power one way or another as policymakers or even as citizens to say whether they should, that should be the person that is honored in that way. I say that not to say that tomorrow we should open up everything for renaming, but to say that in a reasonable way, we need to reevaluate and update, whether it's rules or how we honor folks 
or other things like that, that reflect who we are as a society now, that do it in an inclusive way, not in a vengeful way, or it's our turn now, we're going to get you back and all, but, but in a thoughtful and meaningful way. And I think that we have enough folks, I hope still, um, on both sides of a ideological divide, although sometimes I wonder about which side these days, but enough people that are, you know, thoughtful enough to have that conversation. Maybe a better way to say it is if we ever don't have people, you know, enough people on both sides that can have that kind of conversation. How can it be? Sunday Civics. So that's a, a, a great point to talk about the new podcast. Well, it's not really new. <laughs> the podcast that I have now, <laughs> Our America. Talk to us a bit about what you discuss on Our America. So this is, we're about to launch the second season of Our America. And during the first season, uh, it was focused on really the most vulnerable in our nation. And we told the stories of um, people who were struggling. We talked to newsmakers, policymakers, people in the news. Uh, And really, we dove deeply into the most vulnerable communities. So we did something, for instance, on uh, people who are homeless in Las Vegas and live in tunnels, drainage tunnels that run underneath the Las Vegas Strip. We did an episode uh, where we spoke with people who live in a mobile home community in Waukee, Iowa, uh, and talked to them about them resisting, pushing back against a private equity group that had bought up their mobile home park and that tried to jack up the rent on them. Um, we talked about uh, deep problems in our foster care system with people who had gone through the system in Los Angeles. Um, we're going to keep that same spirit in the second season, but the format is changing. It's really going to be focused uh, in a more timely way on the news of the day and tackling some of these big issues that everyone is following, wondering about. We're still going to have the newsmakers on and also have interviews that dive a little more deeply into these issues and then also have a back and forth. Um, I'm joined by a co-host this season, Sawyer Hackett, who uh, I... I've known for quite a few years now. It was on my campaign. It is uh, really a like this great comms guy. Did that on the campaign and is now the director of uh, People First Future, which is the PAC that we set up to support progressive candidates. And so he and I are going to have great conversation and also interview these newsmakers about issues that affect uh, everybody in our country and particularly those who are struggling. Yeah. You know, the snippet that I listened to was on foster care. So my husband and I are foster parents and, you know, our niche so far has been fostering children where their parents are young themselves. And there seems to be like this, you know, you can point out the multiple failures, you know, throughout the system. And, you know, I find myself often last week, (laughs) I was so frustrated by the foster care agency. At one point I was like, I will come 
for free and redesign your visitation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so like it's just a very, and so it's like, imagine, you know, those of us with, you know, that have the privilege that we are being frustrated and just imagine how the children who are in the system and the parents who are caught up in the system feel. Like if I'm frustrated, you know, at that piece that to the point where I was calling the director and was like, I will come pro bono and fix this because what y'all doing is just disastrous. I can only imagine how the children who are in this position, knowing because I've had them in my home, you know, experience this as well. And, you know, these are some of the issues that, you know, you know, because people are dangling around these fear of critical race theory and people are taking our jobs and, you know, like all of those false problems that people are ginning up anger about. We can't address issues like the faults in our childcare system. We can't address making sure that people have a home and making sure children have food in their belly. Like we can't address those things that we have the resources to do because people have you looking over here, you know, on some false thing or relitigating stuff that we've already addressed. We've already addressed that abortion is part of health care for a woman to decide for her own self with her own doctor and her own family and leave herself alone, right? Like, why do we have to keep revisiting these things when we have other things that we are not spending time on to address? Yeah, you're right uh, about that misdirection uh, that they use. And also that too oftentimes things like the foster care system, the juvenile justice system, they're put on the back burner, whether you're talking about in my home state of Texas or any number of places, uh, they're not invested in the people who go through them are some of the most vulnerable people in our society, powerless. They don't have their army of lobbyists that are paying to go influence, you know, legislation or how much money gets allocated to that system. And so they get overlooked. And then you layer on that what you're talking about, which is that the whole game for a lot of these folks is being played on the playing field of division and centered around issues that are not, you know, creating targets uh, and scapegoats and centering around really oftentimes non-issues that should not take up that much time or oxygen, but are distracting from real problems that everyday people have um, and those just go largely unaddressed and, and unsolved. Yeah. So I know this is going to be a hard question, maybe, but this is their final question. Mm-hmm. If you were mayor of San Antonio once more, yes. what are the three things that you would do for your hometown? Well, uh, if I had the chance to be mayor again, I think that I would uh, focus, keep my focus on education uh, because like I made the number one thing um, a focus on educational opportunity. I think I would increase my focus on creating a stock of affordable housing because that was a challenge that I recognized as mayor. But after seeing everything that I did at HUD and then seeing it on the presidential campaign, visiting so many places, I understand even more now the urgency of addressing the the challenges with housing opportunity or lack of housing opportunity in our country. Um, 
And I'm sure that if I were mayor, uh, I would also be speaking out right now against all the craziness that, that the state leadership is doing, uh, from scapegoating immigrants to failing to fix our power grid, uh, to any number of other things. Uh, you know, I was, I was pretty outspoken on, on the issue of immigration when I was mayor before, uh, but I think it's incumbent upon those mayors of Texas communities now to band together and to push back against all of this division and scapegoating. Look, you, you already have a plan. I thought it was going to be hard for you to decide which one to do. Yeah, it's a little easier. You know, I already did it once, so. Like, I don't just. Yeah, just go back and fix it. It's no big deal. But as you mentioned, definitely addressing housing, you know, is a, a, a large issue. And just closing on that, for those who are, you know, be they policymakers, mayors of, you know, towns who are addressing this issue, you know, what in your mind, I know there are a number of campaigns and actions happening across the country as it per uh, pertains to housing, right? And be that obviously coming out of COVID, a number of people housing insecure due to the rent crisis, through, you know, being able to afford mortgage, so many different issues. And meanwhile, you have these big actors, these corporate companies going through and buying up homes and things of that. It's just a lot happening in the market right now that has an impact on that. But is there a handful of things that can be done. I know there's a lot in the bill, <laughs> the bill pack, but you know, that can be done to sort of where we could look back, let's say 10 years from now, and it'll be a history point, you know, for college students to think about, you know, there was a time when people were housing insecure or people didn't have, like, didn't have a home. Can you believe that? Like, how do we get, how do we bridge to that point? Well, I mean, you put your finger on one of the, one of the things immediately that people can do, which is to push as hard as possible for affordable housing to be a priority as this build back better legislation and budget bill is negotiated. If it goes down from 3.5 trillion, because there was 300, about 300, I think 18 billion dollars for affordable housing in the original version. And I want to see that maintained, preserved as much as possible so people can be pushing their, their senators and congressional representatives to make affordable housing a priority this time. Um, secondly, they can be connecting the dots of opportunity, uh, with their resources, right? Uh, if I had one wish, I would say, get your mayor, your county executive, your housing authority director, your school superintendent, your community college director, your utility director, the transit director, uh, the people from the community as well, especially the most distressed communities, see if you can get everybody in the same room for six hours. I mean this literally in the same room with maps of the most distressed neighborhoods and overlaid on those maps, the different investments that are already being made or will be or planned to be made. And then also a sense of what the needs are you know, from the community and the dreams that they have in their own community for their benefit, not, you know, for the benefit just of people coming into the neighborhood or gentrifying a neighborhood, that kind of visioning and then planning and then executing, um, harnessing of different resources and ideas doesn't happen enough in our country, uh, in community after community. 
but people can do it. It can be done in local communities. And so that's one practical piece of advice I always have from local communities. You start that. I love that. I love that because it's also that you don't have to be the elected. You don't have to be, you know, the mayor in order to make this happen. You can, as a community, demand that this happen, right? And invite those agencies and might invite those representatives to be a part of the process and invite others, like you mentioned, who own property and have let it be vacant for some time. It's like, look, send somebody from like from your development corporation and campaign to let's have this collaborative thing. I know you want to make money. Got it. But people also need shelter. Like let's come together and figure out something that can work for everyone. And sort of being in that collaborative space may help. It may be hard, but it is a way to, to move forward. Well, I loved the conversation with you. I knew it was going to be great. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. Uh, You know, I uh, uh, really appreciate all of the different ways that you're helping to inform your listeners about how they can be empowered to make change happen. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to do my part, too. Absolutely. Well, thank you so very much to Julian Castro for joining us on Sunday Civics. Hopefully you'll come back at some point and we can talk about something else. Maybe you'll, you know, we're young. We're not. It's not. On with me next time. Yes, absolutely. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks to all of you for joining us. We'll be back with more Sunday Civics next Sunday.